0: So it's good to see kids go out, not because we want them to go out, but it's good to see so many kids uh, part of our church and going down and going to have a great time in their own worship experience and learn the Word of God and come to a better understanding of the gospel. And all of that is for the purpose so that they could know who Jesus is and how much He loves them and desires to be in relationship with Him. And so I'm excited about our children's ministry and uh, what God is doing there. We've had... uh, some in the last year trust the Lord as personal Lord and Savior. Some of those have been baptized. Some are still awaiting baptism. And many are right there on the edge of, of um, placing their faith in Jesus. They're asking lots of questions. They understand that that's a need in their life. They're just not yet to the point where they're answering the call that the Lord's making upon their life. So I just encourage you as a church, make that a matter of prayers. You're praying for our church, just ask the Lord through the Holy Spirit to just continue to speak to kids. And, uh, and would bring them to a place of faith and confession. Take your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to the little letter of Jude. Uh, it's the second to the last book of the Bible. So if you go to Revelation, just hang a left, and it's one simple page there, one short 25-verse letter that Jude wrote to the church long ago. We're going to begin a series this morning that, as you can see on the screen, is just simply entitled Stand. Because we're going to see as we walk through these next three Sundays, we see what Jude had to to write and say to the early church. He was really encouraging them to stand, stand in the day in which they live, stand for the word of God, stand for the truth of the gospel, but to stand. And so that's a a word that we need to hear today as well. We need to be willing and able to stand for the Lord in this day and age, standing upon the word of God. What we're going to see is that what Jude wrote is very similar in its message to what Peter, or what Paul wrote to Timothy and what Peter wrote in 2 Peter. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, these words are on the screen for you. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And then verse 17 is the reason for all of this, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God has given us His Word so that we might know Him and then might grow in that relationship and also to stand in the truth of God's Word. We as Christians are a Bible people. And we as Christians in this church, we identify ourselves as Southern Baptists. We are part of the Southern Baptist Convention. That is our denomination. And we have a doctrinal position on what we believe, on many things. One of those tenets of what we believe is grounded in our understanding and our belief of Scripture. And so this is our statement of faith found in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is our statement. If you'll look on the screens with me. We believe that the Holy Bible was written by men. It's divinely inspired and is God's re- re- revelation of himself to man. It's a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It is God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error. For its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. That's a long doctrinal statement, but that's what we believe as Southern Baptists. We stand upon the Word of God because in the Word of God, that's that's where we find God. It's not in our personal beliefs. It's not in what grandma taught us. It's not in what we hope God to be. It's not in some philosophical teaching out there. What we believe about God and understand about God is grounded in the Word of God, the Holy Bible. That's a good place to say amen. Sometimes you need some encouragement in that, and and you're just not sure, should I say something, should I not say something. Feel free to shout, jump up, down, get a hanky, wave it, whatever you feel like doing this morning. I'm okay with it. Hey, I see that you got the memo again today. <laughs> Kara must be taking a picture of me and sending it to the Riddle House. It's two times in the last three Sundays that we have looked very similar. Great minds thinking alike. I'm not sure if it's yours or mine, but uh, <clears throat> we live in an age of biblical skepticism. Do you realize that? We live in an age where everything is up for debate. Everything is being uh, criticized. Everything is being looked at with through the lens of skepticism and it's... Doubly so, I would say, when it comes to biblical things, Christian things. seems that the Bible's trustworthiness and the standards that God has set forth there are being doubted and and dismissed on every level of our culture. People are looking at the Word of God and looking at the teaching of Scripture and looking at the, the church's positions on certain things and just doubting and dismissing them. The question, however, regarding the veracity and the authority of the Word of God is nothing new. We should not be alarmed at this. We should not be in all of this and and thinking that this is something new. This has been something that's been going on from the beginning of time. Genesis chapter 3, you know this passage well, I'm sure. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see the first time, right after the beginning of human history, right after the beginning of creation itself, some point after God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, a serpent came crawling along and began to do exactly what we see in our culture today. He was doing it back then. Genesis 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say to So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight light to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now what's going on here in this text As you see, this serpent comes and he begins to cast doubt upon the word of God by asking the simple question. Did God actually say? Did God really say this? Is this something that the Lord said? Did you hear him correctly? Then he twisted God's word and maligned God's character when he made the statement. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You see, God's trying to hold out on you a little bit. God knows something that you don't know. And if you will eat of this fruit, you will know what he knows and you will be like him. He appealed to the pride that was lying under the surface. The propensity to be proud and to think highly of themselves. By doing all of this, the serpent marginalized God's authority. You won't die. You're going to be like God. God doesn't have anything on you. And if you will do this, you're going to be just like God. No longer will he be Lord over you. You will be at least co-equals, if not the other. That's what the serpent did. He questioned the veracity and the authority of God's word. And so by questioning God's word and causing Adam and Eve, or leading them, I should say, to, to sin and to plunge themselves into depravity, what he did is he caused the fall of humanity and the curse of God to come upon all of creation. And so Adam and Eve's fall, as horrible as we've just read it, could have been eliminated. It could have been stricken. It could have been avoided. You see, God gave... Adam, a command there in chapter 2, verse 17, when he was there speaking of all the creation, all the things that were at Adam and Eve's disposal. He looked at Adam and he says, all of this is for you. You can eat of it. You can enjoy it. It is for your good pleasure. But there's one thing you shall not eat of. That's the tree that's in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of it. Here is a clear command from the word of God, the mouth of God. He also gave dominion to Adam to rule over all that was created. He was also to be the protector of his wife. And so when that serpent walked up that day, and I say walked up because part of the curse was that he would crawl on his belly. So apparently the serpent looked different back then. So when that serpent came up that day and he began to converse with Eve and began to tempt her to think differently than what God had said, what he was doing was detrimental. What he was doing was something that Adam had the the resources to combat. You see, Adam had the word of God to stand on. Adam had the dominion to stand in. And so what he could have done is what we would do to a serpent who crawls up in our garden. What do you do with it? You take the hoe out and you whack its head off, right? And then you hold it up and look what I killed. That's what Adam should have done. The first death that should have taken place in the garden shouldn't have been Adam and Eve dying in their relationship with God. It should have been the serpent's head coming off because he dared to question the authority of God's word and the character of God himself. And he also should have stood by his wife and stood up for his wife and protected her when he came whispering doubt into her ears. So all of this could have been avoided. It's been said that all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And today we live in a in an age of moral, ethical, and spiritual confusion. Now we say that and it's a true statement, but sometimes when we under we look at what the, the culture in which we live, we think there's never been another day like this. There has been, right? Other cultures have been more wicked even today. There are cultures in our, in our world that are much more wicked than we are. But when we look at our American culture, it's not good today, right? Can I get an amen there? It's not where it should be. It's not where God would have it to be. Now, we need to understand that we're not called to be in a theocracy like Israel was, but we as the church of Jesus Christ ought to be the light that makes a difference in a dark world and culture in which we live. And so today, because of our Spiritual anemia as a church, we live in an age of moral, ethical, and spiritual confusion. Many of our historic and traditional Judeo-Christian beliefs built upon this word stating here on this platform are being blurred. They're being replaced with a version of thinking that's devoid of God. This transition is not just happening outside the church. I would say it's happening outside the church because it's happening within the church. Unfortunately... It's greatly influencing many within the church. And so how should Christ followers respond? That's the big question for us today. How should we respond to the culture in which we live? How should we respond to the culture in which we many times find within the church itself? Well, here as we come to the book of Jude, this short letter, this half-brother of Jesus calls us in in verse 3 to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints so over the next three Sundays, beginning this morning, we're going to look at this call to stand from Jude. And together we're going to learn to stand up, we're going to learn to stand back, and then we're going to learn to stand fast. This morning we're going to talk about the call to stand up. I believe the greatest threat to the church is not and has never come from outside of the church. I believe the greatest threat, we see it in the word of God, we can see it in church history, the greatest threat to the church is from within the church. Perhaps that's why Paul and the apostles and the scriptures speak so clearly and so powerfully to the threat of heresy from within the church. See, it's not governmental or societal persecution and pressure that harms the church. It doesn't matter what Richmond may do or what they may legislate or what D.C. may legislate. None of that really affects us as a church inwardly. It only hurts us outwardly, but that really doesn't matter. But what can hurt the church is what comes from within. In fact, oftentimes, the things that come from without the the external persecution and pressures oftentimes lead the church to have greater influence. In fact, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers in the 2nd century said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What he understood is that as the persecution ramps up against the church and even leads to martyrdom for the sake of the gospel, that just furthers the gospel itself and more and more people begin to believe. So what the enemy uses as a deterrent, actually God turns into a seed sown for the gospel. So the greatest threat to the church has always been false teaching. And the reason for that is because of its subtlety and its severity. It makes it a spiritual poison unlike any other. This is why Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 warned us against the wolves who come in sheep's clothing. So Jude here wrote his letter to believers to encourage them to stand against the spiritual deceptions that threaten to wreak havoc in the church He also, at the same time, wanted to expose all the false teachers and all the false teaching that they were dispensing. And in all of this, he calls believers to stand for the faith. And today, you and I, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to stand. We must stand up. Look there in Jude. Let's read the first four verses together. Jude, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Notice he doesn't say half-brother of Jesus. But he says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Well, we know James is the half-brother of Jesus. That makes Jude the half-brother of Jesus as well. So he's a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Now, he, now he's going to list who he's writing to. To those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ." Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you will speak to us. May the Spirit of God open our hearts and help us today to see this call, to to hear this call to stand up. God, may we stand up for Jesus. May we stand up for the Word of God. May we stand up for the gospel in our homes, in our businesses, in our community, and ultimately in our church. Lord, help us to be a people Who stand up for you. Teach us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning I want us to see three reasons to stand up. I believe Jude gives us here three reasons that I see. And I want you to see those this morning. The first reason that we need to stand up is this. We have a salvation to cherish. That's what Jude lays out for us here these first couple verses. We have a salvation to cherish. Several years ago, I came up with a statement. I was uh, thinking about a, an issue that really was troubling me. I see, really, my whole Christian life, I've heard this argument, especially in ministry the last 20 years or so. And What I've heard from believers is, you know, I really, I don't really feel like I can speak for Jesus. I don't really feel comfortable talking about my faith. I don't really feel uh, like I know enough to engage someone else in a conversation with the gospel. I just don't feel comfortable talking about Jesus. And so that, that, that sentiment really doesn't strike a chord with me. In fact, I reject that sentiment. I, I don't understand that sentiment. So I'm thinking about this one day, and a thought came across my mind, and I really have very few uh, original thoughts, right? Most people don't. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, and so I just kind of fall in line with that, and I'm just a plagiarizer like everyone else. tried to use that argument in college and seminary. It didn't go very far, but uh, they frowned on that sort of thing. But really, there's nothing new under the sun. But I had original thought. That's kind of counterintuitive right there. But I had original thought. That which you are passionate about, you can talk about. Think about that. If you're passionate about something, you have no problem talking about it. I won't ask you to raise your hand in here, but I wonder how many of you are passionate about politics. I mean, you're watching the (laughs) guy wants to raise his hand. We know who it is. You watch the, the news channels, you're listening to your, your, your uh, talk radio, you're listening and or reading blogs and websites, and you're following all the stuff on your phone. I mean, you know everything that's going on in Richmond and D.C. and anywhere on in the world, because you love politics. I, I would fall into that line. I, I listen to that stuff. I, sometimes it just drives me insane, and I just got to turn it off, because after a while they're just saying the same thing over and over again, and they're just fighting, they get nowhere. But I'm into that sort of thing, and so I can, and I will talk about that in certain circles. I don't want to I don't want to wear people out. But the reason I can and want to talk about it is cuz I'm passionate about it. Sports is an area where people are passionate and so they can talk about it and want to talk about their team, especially this time of year with basketball, with college basketball getting down to just, we're like what 10 days or so from from college tournament starting and and so all of that's kicking up for March Madness and this is a this is a time to talk about Sports and college basketball. We can talk about it because we're passionate about it. You can talk about your career, your job, the the field that you work in. Because you don't just work in it for a paycheck. You work there hopefully because you love it and you enjoy that field, that career you have. And so you want to and you can talk about it. Some of you will talk about your vacation and the destinations you have been and the places you want to go. and, And that's something you will talk about in your circles because you love it, you're passionate about it. Maybe your hobbies, whether it's golf or whether it's tennis or gardening or tra- uh, crafting or sh- uh, scrapbooking or, or whatever you may do, whatever your hobby is, fishing, hunting, uh, gardening. I think I already said that, but whatever it is, you will talk about it because you're passionate about it. But when it comes to your faith, why is that same general idea not also applicable? Why do people pull back when it comes to talking about their faith, could it be that they don't have the passion for it that they should? Their passion isn't greater than their fear of, I wouldn't even say persecution, fear of rejection. We need to be passionate about Jesus. You see, what we possess in the Lord is worth getting excited about. That's why earlier I said you can shout at me and you can stand up and jump and wave a hanky, do whatever you want because Jesus is worth getting excited about. Good place to say amen, kind of coach you into this. (laughs) Thank you, Travis, appreciate that. Jesus is worth getting excited about. He's not some dead religion that we just kind of, we ascribe some sort of affinity to. We roll in here on Sunday, sometimes even drug in here on Sunday because we have to do this. We don't have to do this, we get to do this. We get to worship Jesus. He's worth being excited about. He's done something for us. Thank you. Man, that's good. You guys are getting good. So Jude here begins his letter by reminding us that we have a salvation in Jesus that's worth cherishing. There are four aspects. I don't really have time to, to lay all this out. So I'm going to encourage you to do this. I could preach a whole message just on salvation to church because he lays out four things here. There's a calling and he talks about how we've been called into Jesus Christ. That calling is an effectual calling. In other words, I'm dead in my sin and trespasses have no ability, no desire to know God. But when the Holy Spirit begins to move in my life and begins to open my ears and my heart to Jesus, he gives me the power and the ability to say yes to the gospel. And so he calls us. And then he talks about how not only is he calling us, but he's also loving us. Jesus has demonstrated us at, to us as sinners, the ability and the the love that he has by dying for us there on the cross. God loves us. He continues to love us. The word there that he he uses, the tense that he uses, speaks of it being in in eternity past, but it's also effectual today and even to tomorrow. The love of God is always on his children. That's good. You're getting trained. (laughs) Then he talks about, he says, we're being kept for Jesus, better translation could be that he, we're being kept by Jesus Christ. The, the Bible talks about how we are sealed in the Holy Spirit. That there's nothing we did to get in salvation. That we're being held in Jesus's hand. So there's nothing we can do to get out of that salvation. We are kept by Jesus. That's something to cherish. I didn't fall into my faith in Jesus. I was drawn into my faith with Jesus. Therefore, I can't fall out of my faith in Jesus because He's keeping me in the faith with Jesus. You See that? And then he talks about how we're being blessed in Jesus. There's a blessing. He says, may peace, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And so there's the love of God. There's the keeping of God. There's the blessing of God. All of this... Is to our benefit. So I, I want to, there's so much more that I've got written there, but I don't have time to really unpack it like I wish I could. And so every week, what we do on our website, our, go to our media page, you can listen to the audio of the sermon. You can also see the PDF manuscript that I preach from every single week. And so I would encourage you to do that for some further study. But we have a salvation to cherish. We have a salvation to cherish. Jesus has done so much for us. And let me just remind you of something. You did nothing for him. You did nothing for him. All you did was bring your junk. Jesus, here's the garbage of my life. Here's all my sin and sinfulness. Here's all the depravity and the debauchery. Here's my immorality. Here's my wickedness. Here's my hatred of you. I bring it to the cross, and I give it, and I receive free of charge the grace and the mercy that was won and paid for through the blood of of Christ. We have a salvation to cherish. Second thing I want you to see here from what Jude says is that we have a faith to champion. We have a faith to champion there in verse 3, beloved. Although I was eager, very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude here is informing his readers that his initial plan was to write about this common salvation. That's really what he wanted to do. Jude is uh, the Greek version, transliteration of the Hebrew name Judas, which means praise. I mean, Jude's nature as a follower of Jesus, Jude's nature by name was that he wanted to exhort and to bless and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted to bring praise to his name. That's what his original intention was to do, to write a letter to encourage the believers in this common salvation. But the Holy Spirit had different plans, he had different plans. We need to celebrate. We need to talk about what Jesus has done for us. We need to be reminded of the goodness of God. What he's saying here is we need to champion the faith that we have. We need to be reminded of our common salvation, the wonderful things in it. But we also just need to understand the weightiness of the gospel. And we need to do two things in this champion. We need to talk highly of Jesus and we need to defend what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done. You see, one of the reasons we gather weekly, if, you, if you've never thought about, why do I go to church? It's not just because you always have done it. It's not because you learned it from grandma or mom and dad. It's not because you just feel like it's something you should do. We gather as a church off the model of the early church because they gathered to encourage one another to champion the faith. They needed to talk about this salvation. They needed to speak into one another's lives. They needed to remind each other of all that Jesus had done for them, what Jesus was doing in them, and what Jesus would continue to do for and in them into the future, even in the face of gross persecution. And so we gather weekly as a church to talk about the gospel, To lift high and champion the gospel of Jesus Christ. We champion it from this platform. Every single week we champion the gospel from this platform. We take the word of God and we proclaim it and teach it for what it is. We don't take the word of God and peek pieces out to to, to fit a message that we want to say. We fit what we would like to say to the word of God, right? That's championing the word of God. We champion it. In the pews, we champion it in our small groups. We champion the Word of God throughout the halls on this campus and even in the parking lot. We ought to champion the Word of God even in our homes and our daily life and everything that we do. We champion our faith because Jesus is the only one who can help when life falls apart. Where are you going to turn when life takes your legs out from underneath you? Where are you going to turn? you Are going to turn to your friend? Most of the times they turn away from you. You really want to know where your friends are and who they are? Look around you when the life is taking your legs out from underneath. There you'll, you'll know where your friends are. I hope you find friends in the church. People who are coming alongside of you and serving you and ministering to you, praying for you, lifting you up. We champion the faith because only Jesus can put the brokenness of our lives back together. That's why we preach the word of God. I don't have anything to help you with. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not any of those things. I'm not a person that would be on TV that would give you seven steps or whatever. I don't have anything to offer but the word of God. It's kind of like when Peter and John were headed to the temple in Acts chapter 3. They go past this lame guy who cries out asking that they would give them money so that he could buy food for that day. And Peter says, I don't have anything. Silver or gold I have? Not. But what I do have in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand and walk. I don't have anything to offer you as a church. We don't have anything to offer our community outside of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we unashamedly lift high the name of Jesus and his gospel, his good news. That's why we declare that there is life found in no other name other than Jesus. But Championing the faith also means that we defend it. As Jude is set out here to write this letter to the church, he says, I wanted to write about a common salvation, but the Holy Spirit changed my mind. The Holy Spirit gave me a detour in my course. He led Jude to write about the battle that needed to take place against the forces of evil in this world. Not outside the church, but inside the church. So he called the church to contend for the faith. The word group here from which contend comes, is it designates a military or athletic contest. The word is affiliated with the word that we would get our word agonized from. So we as Christians are to agonize in this contending for the faith. It's not to be pie in the sky, easy stuff. This is hard work as we do labor for the gospel. So we contend to hold to the word of God in all that it says. It's a compound verb. It would tell us to agonize. And so championing the faith is not a cakewalk. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's dangerous work. There are people in the places around the world that can lose their life because they dared to stand up and say Jesus is the only way. I remember years ago I was standing in a uh, refugee settlement in southwest Uganda. And I'm standing there and we're surrounded by people from 11 different countries, most of them Muslim. Many Somalians were standing around us and we were doing a medical clinic and every day we'd be in a different place. And so before we did the clinic, while everyone was setting up, I or someone else would go out there and sometimes the crowds were so big we'd have multiple people doing this in smaller groups. But in this particular settlement called Nakavali, I was standing there and we just had everybody kind of already in their lines. And I went to the very middle of these different stations, hundreds of people all around us, and I just began to kind of share the gospel telling them about what Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus did for them, how they could come into relationship with Jesus. And that particular day, I dared to compare Jesus with Muhammad and Allah. And the whole time I'm preaching the gospel, I expected, though I, I, I expected yet didn't expect, but it could have happened that uh, something would pierce my back or something would happen to me because I dared to compare in the midst of that, that particular audience that Jesus was greater than someone else. You see, sometimes when we contend for the faith, there's a danger to our lives. Obviously, nothing happened. I'm still here today. But it can happen. It does happen around the world. We need to be reminded of that, that the easiness that we have it here in America is not true in most places of the world. It can be dangerous work. Sometimes it may mean for us here in America that we just simply stand alone when the majority of the people are walking away. We need to be okay with that as we champion the faith so the reason we champion the faith is because it's once for all delivered to the saints, Jude says. Jude here is not speaking of a nebulous body of religious teachings. What he's doing is referring to the faith of the gospel, that which was given to the apostles. We have a solid faith. It's not to be added to. It's not to be taken from. We need to live in it. We need to believe it in its entirety, exactly how it is shared with us in God's word. This faith is what Christ followers are to champion. It's what we're to guard. And this leads us to a third reason to stand up. And I need to hurry this morning. We need to stand because there's a perversion to combat. There's a perversion to combat. You see, the greatest danger, as I said earlier, to the church came from within. It never came from without. You look at church history. The church struggled for the first 300, 250 years or so of its existence. Great persecution against it. But once Emperor Constantine deemed Christianity somewhat a quasi-religion of Rome, that's when things really began to move detrimentally, incrementally but detrimentally to the church. It's when things became easier and heresy became more prevalent within the church. So we need to look within. Jude informs his audience, he informs us, that what Peter warned against in 2 Peter chapter 2, For the people that Jude is writing to had become a reality. False teachers had secretly infiltrated the church with their evil intentions, and Jude here describes them as being ungodly. He describes them as being sensual deniers of Jesus Christ. They perverted the truth of God's word. So when you read what he says here in verse four, you just—I don't know about you—but I ask the question: How did these people ever get into the church? How does a person who denies Jesus, tries to lead people towards sensuality, basically everything that Jesus is against and the Word of God is against, they're trying to move people toward? How does that person become a person of influence? Well, obviously, they didn't walk in the door with it stamped on their forehead saying, I am a denier of Jesus Christ. Let me be your pastor. Right? That doesn't happen that way, typically. It came in, or they came in, and they talked the game. They claimed and played the part of a Christ follower. They didn't openly and completely reject the truth. But what they did is they followed the pattern of Satan that we read earlier in the Garden of Eden. They subtly questioned the word and the character of God. Little by little. Here's something you need to take home this morning. The enemy is very patient. He's very patient. You say, well, that's a virtue. That's a fruit of the Spirit. Well, in his case, it's not a fruit of the Spirit. He's just willing to wait and buy his time to make sure that his little subtle and severe attacks come to fruition. See, what the enemy rarely does is attack us full bore from the front. He's not the frontal assault guy. What the enemy does is he'll flank you. He'll come around from this side and and the other side. And little by little, he'll take nips here and there. Until ultimately down the line, he destroys you. The enemy knows that if he can create a little doubt today, there's a very good chance at some point down the line, there's going to be a complete rejection of God's word. And that's what happens in church after church after church. This past week, I don't know if you uh, paid attention, there wasn't a whole lot of coverage on mainline News reports, but this past week the United Methodist Church defied mainline Protestant history by saying no to the sexual revolution that's destroying our culture. In a vote of 53% to 47%, the church upheld biblical sexuality. The United Methodist Church, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but the United Methodist Church was the only remaining mainline Protestant denomination to not have officially and fully embraced the LGBTQ movement. You say, what's the big deal about this? Well, if we were to go back to the middle of the 20th century, we would see that every mainline denomination, including the Southern Baptist Convention, was moving headlong into theological liberalism. But what happened in the middle of the 20th century, really a little bit before that, was that these denominations, including our own, were being influenced by leaders who began to question traditional doctrines. Now, they didn't come out completely and just utterly deny everything about the Word of God, but they asked a little bit of questions here and there, and little by little began to nip away at the theological foundation of these denominations. They began to question these doctrines that did not align to the new and emerging philosophical and scientific beliefs of the modern age. What they did is they sought to adapt the church's teachings to the ever-evolving culture. We must never do that. The culture is always going to change, but the Word of God never does. We must adapt our culture and a church to the Word of God and never to the culture around us. That's another good place to say amen. Amen. So they did by rewriting the church's view on things like the virgin birth, questioning the veracity of Scripture, and dismissing the Bible's teaching on sexuality, among all sorts of other things. My own seminary, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, uh, there was a day not long ago, 20 plus years ago, where there were professors in Southern Seminary teaching things like this. Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. Jesus' atonement on the cross wasn't everything that needed it. It was just part of it. They taught all kinds of doctrines that were nothing but heresy. So it's not just these other denominations. It was our own in the mid part of the 20th century. The movement within these various denominations was slow. It was incremental. But it was a clear departure from teaching of Scripture. Thankfully, there were within the Southern Baptist Convention great leaders... Who championed the truth and combated the perversion infiltrating the church's doctrine. What's come to be known as the conservative resurgence began in 1979. There in Houston, Texas, the Southern Baptist Convention met for its annual meeting. And they elected by a narrow margin, Dr. Adrian Rogers of Bellevue Baptist Church. He's in heaven today. I remember I met him one time. I got to shake his hand in 2003, and I thought that dude's hand is the softest hand of a man I've ever shook, 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 shake, shaken, whatever that is. I'm edumacated, sort of. (laughs) I loved Adrian, still do. Every time he's on the radio, and I can listen, I I listen to Adrian Rogers. I cut my spiritual teeth on his preaching. But Adrian Rogers and and many more for the next 10 plus years were greatly used to lead the fight to take back the Southern Baptist Convention from the laws of theological liberalism. And today's convention of more than 45,000 churches, we still believe the Bible because men and women like they stood up and combated the perversion that threatened the church. And so this past week, the historical vote within the United Methodist Church was a vote against perversion. They were coming against perversion, and it was a vote for truth. The slippery slope they've been on began in the 1960s during the free love movement. Rather than extinguishing the perversion then, it was allowed to stay and even given a place among the Methodists. And so that a slight departure decades ago from biblical sexuality has steadily increased over the years, resulting in some Methodist churches, even conferences within the denomination, openly embracing LGBTQ members and ordaining LGBTQ ministers. You say, that's unheard of. Why in the world would we ever do that? First of all, let me just uh, preface what what I don't want to preface. That's not even a word edumacated. Let me distinguish, so you don't miss out. When I am speaking against this movement, I'm not speaking against the people. Right? Sin is sin, and we love sinners. We just hate the sin. We stand for biblical truth, so we don't live in a culture, or we don't, we don't, pray to a culture that says you must embrace this. No, we say the word of God says I should never embrace that though I will embrace the person and try to lead them to faith in Jesus. So please don't misunderstand this is not a message against the people of this movement. It's against the movement itself because it leads people astray. I hope that was clear enough. And so I praise the God for this denomination the United Methodist Church standing for biblical sexuality, though I think it's going to completely split the denomination, and it probably will be litigated because the denomination owns properties and all that. It's going to be a mess in the years to come. But I praise God for the mainly the churches internationally, most of them in Africa, who still believe the Bible. That's not to say that the church in America doesn't, but there are many, many, many more conservative, theologically grounded, biblical ministers and churches in that denomination overseas than there are. In our country, Jude here calls the church to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It is faith that is complete and it's a faith that is final. There's no need for it to be rewritten. There's no need for it to be reinterpreted. There's no need for this book to be adapted to a modern culture. It is God's word and we must stand on it. We then must confront those who would espouse a new and a different doctrine in hopes of bringing correction to their misunderstanding of Scripture. There are times when people are just misguided and can be brought into truth. There are also other times, as Jude would say, that those people are wolves in sheep's clothing and we must treat the false prophet like we would treat the false teaching. We must deal with them and kick them out. We must be willing to do that. We must not be as a church or as a convention willing because we want to be politically correct to give them a place. You give them an inch, they will take a mile. And it's not them, it's the enemy, right? It's, the, it's Satan himself that's seeking to undermine and destroy the church. And so today, standing up and continuing for the faith, it can be extremely difficult. The current of worldly culture is ever working to erode our theological and biblical foundation. So how can we as Christ followers, how can we as Bible believers stand up in this godless culture? Let me give you three quick behaviors and we will land the plane. First of all, affirm the truth. we got to affirm the truth. we got to affirm in our hearts and in our minds that this is the truth of God. There's no need for more. There must not must not be less. This is everything. That's why I love our doctrinal statement as a Southern Baptist, because it's very clear. We say we stand on the whole counsel of God. So we need to affirm the truth. If we don't affirm the truth that this is God's Word, and if we don't lay it down as the foundation upon which we stand, the culture will erode the foundation from underneath us. There's a creek that runs behind our house. It feeds the lake in our neighborhood. And uh, when Hurricane Michael came through last fall, I was walking back along the creek, back on the, a, a timbered piece of property that's not mine, but I, was, I just wanted to see what the, the, the water did. And So I'm walking along the creek bed, and uh, I just began to see all the damage that it did. I mean, there were oak trees that I would... Probably two or three of us it would take to get our arms around these trees, oaks and poplars and, and sycamores and all kinds of other trees. But, man, it had just eroded out from underneath them and so much that they fell and then they knocked other trees down. And it looked like a war zone, still does, back there. You say, how in the world did those trees fall? It wasn't because the, just the wind pushed them. The wind was pushing, the water was eroding, and it took the foundation out from underneath it, and today they are dead laying on their sides As a result, that's what culture will do to us if we are not doing what the the trees did not do. And that is ever deepening our roots into the Word and the truth of God. We must affirm the truth. That's how we're going to continue to stand up. We need to affirm and grow our roots deep, deep, deep into God's Word. Secondly, reject the error. Reject the error. Line up everything that is being said against the teaching of the Bible and then reject anything that deviates from that. Anything. Which, l- let me just, if you haven't figured this out yet, it will make you unpopular in certain circles. It just will. But that's okay. I'd better, rather be popular and in f- under the favor of God than popular and out of the favor of God by going with culture. Give me this... Uh, infinitely more than the other it's dangerous ground so we're going to affirm the truth we're going to reject the error and then thirdly defend the faith don't be afraid to contend for the faith in the ring of life now I'm not saying take a sword and go and wage war that's not what we're talking about here but be willing to have the conversation you say how can I have the conversation well you've got to do something to be able to defend the truth you've got to do something yourself you've got to know the faith that's why your roots have to be ever-growing deep into God's Word so that you can have a foundation upon which to build a conversation, upon which to stand against the peer pressure and the force of cultural thinking. Never be a jerk. There's no place for, for uh, unkindness in the Christian life. Don't be a jerk. Don't be contentious. Don't be going for a fight. Sometimes we as Christians, we have this uh, attitude about us that we're, we're looking for a fight. Don't be that person. But when something is not right and someone is trying to lead you in a different direction, especially if someone is trying to lead other brothers and, Christi- brothers and sisters astray or your own children astray, stand and fight. You see, if Adam had taken the hoe out in the garden, I assume he had one. He was tending the garden. If he had taken the hoe out and cut that sucker's head off, we might not be in this problem today. Unless one of you, or me, Plunge this into depravity. We need to stand and defend the faith. Be willing to be gracious and yet biblically defend the faith. Standing up for the faith, a couple things we need to know. It's going to require you to be in the faith. See, there's where you've got to start. Perhaps some of you this morning, you have no theological foundation upon which to stand because you've never yet... Placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's where you need to start this morning. And so this morning, you can't stand for something. You can't stand for someone. You can't stand for Jesus because you have not yet let yourself let Jesus stand for you, You've not faith into him. And so I would encourage you today, place your faith in Jesus. We're going to have a time of response in just a moment. I would encourage you to come forward and, and, and allow me to get you with one of our encouragers. You say, I don't know what an encourager is. I promise you, if you come forward, if God's speaking in your life, you come forward, you share with me what your need and burden is, I'm going to immediately, after I pray with you, get, with one, get you with one of our encouragers, which is a person is going to come down to you. They're going to walk you to one of the rooms back behind us, and they're going to walk through the gospel and help you biblically answer whatever questions you have. That's what an encourager is. So some of you need to place your faith in Jesus. Some of you, standing up for the faith means that you need to begin to grow in your faith. You need to deepen your roots in God's word. You need to have a better understanding of the gospel. Perhaps you're walking into guilty distance because you're just living in sin, even as a Christian. Maybe it's because you just don't read your Bible very often. You just kind of pop into church from time to time. And, and we know who you are, by the way. I'm saying that. I'm just being funny. We really do, but will you? Um, I hope that stings a little bit. I'm trying to be funny, but I really do hope that stings a little bit. Because, you know, when you're not walking in fellowship with the Lord, you're out of the will of God. Do you understand that? So you ought to be regularly reading your Bible. You ought to be regularly, daily, praying and seeking His face. You ought to be in church. As often as you can, I would say weekly unless you're on vacation or if you're on business trip or whatever. But this ought to be part of your spiritual discipline and devotion in your life. You ought to be in a small group. You ought to be in some sort of other smaller group where you're being discipled and discipling others. There ought to be that dynamic in your life where I am not satisfied with just the status quo Christianity. I want more. I want to be all that Jesus has for me. I want to be all that Jesus wants me to be. And so I'm going to do whatever it takes. That ought to be the mentality that you have. I'm going to contend for the faith even in my own life. That should be your sentiment. So the reason you can't stand is because your roots are so shallow. That whatever cultural winds blow against you, you tumble over. This morning, maybe you just need to come and just say, Lord, here I am. This is my condition. Help me to step up and move to a deeper level of faith. Maybe you just need to make these steps and alter to the Lord this morning and spend some time praying or wheel around in your seat and take a knee there at your, in your pew. Whatever it means for you, whatever the Lord would have you to do, let's have the freedom to move this morning as we respond to God's word. Amen? Let me pray for us. Nick's going to come, and we'll sing and respond. Father, we thank you for your word that is a great challenge to us. God, my prayer is is that we've been reminded today that Christianity is is not a spectator sport. Truth be told, we've had too much spectators. We've had too much time sitting in the stands rather than being on the field. And God, that's where we've been culturally as Christians in America for so long. The result has been a false sense of security. I I think there, I firmly believe there are people in churches all over our land, perhaps even in ours here today, that they have a false sense of security because they are affiliated with our church, maybe even be members of our church. But God, the stark reality is that they've never come into relationship with you. They've never fully trusted in, in in salvation through Jesus. They've never fully confessed their sin. They've never relied upon the blood of Christ. They're just simply religious. God, I pray for that person, whether it's a senior adult man, a middle-aged woman, a child here today, that they love church. They love the idea of church. They love being here. They're encouraged. But, Lord, they're just not a Christian. God, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would Really, can press that issue. Lord, I pray that they'd be so burdened over that that today, despite what it may appear, and who cares what people think, but despite what someone may think, the fear of that, that the enemy's placed in their mind, that they would be willing to publicly say yes to Jesus. Father, I pray for Christians who are just shallow, I mean, just casual Christians, just going through the motions. Lord, they need deeper roots. They believe all kinds of junk that our culture teaches because they just don't know any better. Lord, I I thank you for those this past year who read through the Bible in its entirety, many of them for the very first time. I pray that help them to, to seek their roots deeper into your word. God, we need more of that. Help us to have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, to drive to know your word to take our faith seriously. Perhaps this morning, this time of response. Our our response needs to be, God, I confess to you, I am a casual Christian. I do not take seriously what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I just go through the motions. I just do as little as possible. God, I want to confess to you, that is sin, that is wrong. That's not what you've asked of me. You require all of my life. And God, today could be a day of starting over, walking with Jesus afresh and anew. Lord, there's others who've been visiting our church for many months. God, you're leading them to make decisions in those areas. We just give you freedom. May the Holy Spirit move across our hearts. May God, lead us to make decisions we need to make. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus and for his glory.